Thad Levine, the Twins general manager, joins us right now. And uh, I would guess, sir, start you off with this one, that you're feeling pretty good about what you saw from Brios last night. 11 strikeouts and uh, back-to-back now, he has looked fantastic. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, guys. And of course. Absolutely. I mean, he's, he's come up and faced two of the best lineups in the game in Cleveland and Colorado and, and really has performed exceptionally well. I couldn't be happier for him. He, he came out of spring training pitching well in the WBC. We gave him some challenges down at AAA, and he embraced them. And he's come up, and it's really translated into a lot of success. And what he did yesterday was exceptional. You know, I think the Colorado Rockies offense is – going as well as any offense in the game. We saw that the first two games of the series, Mm -hmm. and he really was able to keep them on their heels and and neutralize them for seven and two-thirds innings last night. So, Thad, I'm going to give you what uh, the old school or what Twins fan says when when a guy who looks to be set to come up is left down, okay? Old school Twins fan or Twins fan says this is the poll ads being cheap and you're trying to get Barrios not to be a super two and it's contract, blah, 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 blah. Uh, explain this to me, though, because what I said was I think you guys, I think you came here uh, not all knowing, but with certainly ideas of what you wanted to see before guys were either demoted or brought up. When you made the decision to send Barrios down and he got off to, I think, uh, three, I think it was three wins in six starts, but he was pitching fantastic. What did you guys want to see that went beyond the he's just pitching well phase? Yeah, and, and, and just to address your first point, I, I do think at times you do factor some of those things in. I mean, listen, we were trying, trying to deliver the best talent to our fan base for as long as we possibly can. Uh, but in this case, I would tell you unequivocally that was never even part of the conversation. Uh, coming into spring training, I think we were open-minded to him making the team. He went performed with the WBC, performed very well, but but quite frankly, pitched a little bit sporadically as the as the nature of that that tournament. And so when he came back, we really just didn't feel like he had enough innings at that juncture to put him in the best position to succeed in the big leagues. So Neil Allen, Eddie Guardado, Paul. Molitor, Derek, myself, some of the other pitching guys got together and we devised a plan for him. And what we saw uh, was, you know, a huge part of his success in the minor leagues was the ability to miss, miss bats. But when you evaluate it a little bit further, we, we recognized that it was from, in large regard, throwing pitches out of the strike zone. And then when he came up to the big leagues, he wasn't able to get away with those types of things. He was in a lot of hitters counts. And, and unfortunately, then big league hitters were taking advantage of that. So we really just impressed upon him the, the importance of throwing quality strikes uh, to use his stuff, which I think all of our fans have seen is, is really well above average stuff, but he needed to use it more in the strike zone. He embraced the challenge, went down to AAA, and did just that. So there wasn't really a formula as to when we were going to call him up, but it was really more when Stu Clyburn, who is the AAA pitching coach, said, hey, listen, this guy's ready to get big league hitters out. We felt it was when he, the time when he came up, and, and he's proven Stu to be right so far. So the system, I think, has worked pretty well for him, but it had everything to do with him putting in the hard work, and he did, but it really had absolutely nothing to do with a contractual matter or any sort of service clock. Thad, this is Chris Long. Judd touched on this earlier. I'm kind of stealing his take. The one thing I've noticed, at least in these last two starts, is I feel like there's a resiliency that maybe he either didn't have or did, couldn't control last year where when things would wobble a little bit, they would go off the rails in a hurry last year and you couldn't get them back. This year, you know, he hits a guy or, or, or gives up a hit and it's just 
he locks right back in the very next batter. Have you seen a difference in just the attitude than, than maybe he carried before? Well, you know, I, I think what you what sometimes we underestimate is how do players re- respond to adversity. And when he came up last year in the big leagues, that was one of the first times he had really had adversity at that level. Not so dissimilar from what Byron Buxton experienced last year in the big leagues. Both of those guys had really coasted through the minor leagues, had done exceptionally well, had always been top prospects in their leagues and considered top prospects in the game. They both come up and they struggle. And I think he was committed this offseason to not let that happen again. No, I think the fact that you pair that attitude with going to the WBC was invaluable for him. He, he's around some of the veteran leaders of that team, the Carlos Beltrans and Yadier Molinas, and, and these guys start teaching him how to, how to be a professional and how to finish himself off. And, and I don't think that should be underestimated in this process. Like, so he enters the offseason with a resolve and a commitment. It's married up with the ability to be around some of the best leaders in the game uh, from his home country. All of a sudden, he's now catapulted forward and he's seizing this opportunity in the big leagues right now. But I, I think he deserves a ton of credit for that. Uh, I think it was kind of a, a nice confluence of some things that transpired this offseason for him. You mentioned Buxton. I mean, hitting team-wise and player-wise and league-wise can sort of be sometimes fickle, but normally you kind of have a sense of where a team is going to be defensively. I think everybody knew that this team was going to be to take a big step forward defensively. I don't know that we all expected it to be as vast as it is. Uh, are you guys, I mean, I'm sure you're pleased, but it, it, has there been something that's triggered just this this vast leap in defensive ability for, for the team, really, uh, throughout the entire lineup? Well, I think, I think you got to start with the outfield. I mean, we talked a lot this offseason as to the improvements we were hoping to make behind the plate, and, and, and I give a ton of credit to Jason Castro and Chris Jimenez. I, I do think they've really impacted our team defensively, but I think when you look at the spectacular plays up and down the outfield that have been made. I mean, it really, you know, it starts with Byron Buxton, but last night we saw some great plays by Max Kepler. We've seen him by Eddie Rosario and, and we've seen him by Grossman and some of the other guys we've thrown out there. It's, it's been tremendous. Now I, I give a ton of credit there. We, we invested this off season in some of the infrastructure to, to help positioning and it's headed up by Jeff Pickler and the major league coaching staff, uh, Jeremy Hefner, who is a former big leaguer, <clears throat> excuse me, was now, much more involved in our in our preparation and our advanced scouting. Uh, so I don't know if you guys have noticed during the games, but all of our outfielders have in their hip pocket a card for that night to tell them exactly where to position players at different times in the game. Byron has been running point as the captain of that, so he looks at his card and then he directs traffic left field and right field. But I think uh, what Jeff Pickler and, and Jeremy Hefner have done to put these guys in the right positions, and then they have to go out and make the plays. So I think the combination of those two things has really enhanced the quality of our defense. And it's, and it's perfect because for guys like Phil Hughes and Hector Santiago, who are a little bit more prone to throwing fly balls, we now have three guys in the outfield who are positioned well, but also talented enough to go track them down. And they've prevented a lot of extra base hits as, as a unit. In this digital world, the positioning card seems so delightfully analog. Is that something – I mean – I have never heard of a team doing that. Is that something that other teams are doing, or is that kind of revolutionary? Because it seems simple, but Judd and I, when you mentioned it, just kind of looked at each other like, well, that's a great idea. Well, we're, we've actually been trying to lobby the league to be able to implant a chip in these guys' brains. <laughs> they haven't allowed for that just yet. I, actually, I, you know, I don't know if you guys noticed, but the throughout the series with Colorado, their catchers had a wristband on, you know, not so dissimilar from an NFL quarterback. Uh, which had their whole scouting report on it, and they were referring to it throughout the game. I think that's becoming a little bit more popular as well. We haven't gotten quite there ourselves, 
Uh, but I think that's something that could be the next iteration of this is uh, Derek Falvey talks openly that the, in Cleveland they did that and they especially did it in the playoffs. You know, there's no shame in having the best information readily available for you. And for the amount of information we're asking catchers in particular to digest and implement throughout the games, it doesn't hurt to have a cheat sheet tied to your wrist. You just need to make sure in a collision that the, the offensive player sliding in doesn't somehow steal that. Uh, but it's, uh, <laughs> We, we, we ideally are trying to make as much of this uh, information actionable as possible. And, and if that means literally putting it on these guys' bodies or in their hip pockets, uh, you know, we, we want to do that because we want it to be something we can implement in the game. Judd, I may or may not have used that same strategy to get through the University of Missouri. That's not just a bad idea. Just little notes just to have all the information readily available. Not a bad idea. So wait, wait. So, so Thad, are, are you saying that the Rockies catcher uh, had the, the information from which then he could position the rest of the fielders? Is that right? And I think I think probably more related to what types of pitches to throw and which counts to okay. specific hitters and to, to kind of illuminate some of their wow. uh, some of our guys' weaknesses. I assume that's probably what he had uh, on his wrist. But you know, if you if you go back and watch the games, and we probably will start seeing more of that in the game. He was referring to his wrist guard quite a bit, especially in key moments in the game yesterday. Uh, Thad, what does uh, Kyle Gibson need to show you uh, at AAA to get back here? I think it's a very similar story to what we were talking about with Jose Barrios earlier. Is I think we regard both those guys as having as good stuff on our staff as any of our starting pitchers. Both, unfortunately, have a tendency to, to try to get a lot of outs outside of the zone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you look at Kyle's success, uh, he's been hyper successful in the big leagues when he throws somewhere between 62 to 65% strikes or anything above that, obviously, would be great. But once he gets to that threshold, uh, it proves that his stuff is really difficult to hit, and he is usually uh, the results in the game are, are very good. When he dips below, you know, that kind of 58 percentile in strikes, that's when he starts getting a little bit in trouble. And so, what we saw in spring training when he was having such great success, his strike percentage rate was at 65 percent almost across the board in all his games or better. Uh, the season started and it started dipping a little bit south of that. And, you know, I'm not saying it's just as simple as that, but I will say when you have as good stuff as Kyle Gibson has, as Jose Burrios has, mm-hmm. you know, the first step, and it sounds overly simple, is you got to throw it over the plate. And with their stuff and with their talent and with their pitch mix and ability, uh, if you start there, you're going to have some level of success. If you start pitching them smartly, you're going to have a ton of success. So first step for him same as Jose Barrios, is just we want to increase the strike percentage. And he's done that in his starts in AAA so far. We're hoping we can see a little bit more of that and try to get him right back up here in the starting rotation. Uh, First place uh, on May 19th, is that a surprise to you at all? You know, it's it's not. You know, if you're around the team throughout spring training, you see the the work that was done and you see the, the framework that Paul Molitor had set for success, you could see how that would translate. Uh, you know, we have to continue to play the schedule out. We've played a lot of in-division games, so I think we have a pretty good sense of the abilities of the team in the division. And, you know, we're hopeful that we don't see any team run away with the American League Central. We see it as a division that should be highly competitive uh, top to bottom throughout. Uh, and we hope to be part of that conversation throughout the course of the summer here. Well, we have you. You want to tell us who you guys are going to draft? Everybody's talking about it. You just want to end the suspense now and just go ahead and let us know? I will blink twice if you guys name the right name. <laughs> I can send a camera over right now if we want to do yeah, it that he's, way. He's a TV guy, Thad. <laughs> Don't say that. Uh, I'll ask it this way. The pressure there is with the number one pick, it's, it's a valuable commodity, and it's, it's 
certainly a position you don't want to be in, but once you're there, it's a luxury to have the ability to select whoever you decide is the best player. But the stakes are pretty high when you're drafting number one. Um, you know, just that you kind of can't miss mentality. Or do you, is it hard to look at it that way, or do you not look at it that way? You know, I think we're, we're, you know, when we talk to our senior scouts, you know, Sean Johnson, the scouting director, Mike Radcliffe, and Darren Johnson, and guys who've been in countless draft rooms, like, we're, we're trying to look at everything you just referenced as pressure as an opportunity. So, you know, you, you have to play the draft for what it what it offers. You know, there there we don't feel as if there's necessarily a Mike Trout or Bryce Harper in this draft. So we, we we're going to be creative. We're going to make sure we make the best decisions we can make. Uh, but I think we're going to try to put forth at the end of the draft a draft class more so than somebody who we're going to be hypercentric to who we take 1-1. One, one. That obviously will be an important piece of the draft class. But our, our charge uh, with, with the most money going into the draft is to put together the best class we can uh, because that's exactly what this organization needs. And quite frankly, I think that's what this draft offers. It doesn't necessarily offer the transcendent singular talent uh, but it is seemingly pretty rich with talent up and down the draft, and that's what we're challenging our guys to do: is let's see, let's see what type of class we can put together, and not necessarily be uber hyper focused on just the the guy we take first in the draft. Hey, Thad, how, how much has this process changed too? Because it seems like in all drafts now, uh, but it seems like with this pick now, there is just more there's more coverage there's more expectation there's more scouting by by you and fans there's more stories how how much has the baseball draft uh, changed in your time in in the game to go from being certainly important uh but just as far as coverage goes and the amount that we see about it i, I think it's great for the game you know it still it still doesn't scratch the surface of what we see in terms of the coverage for the nfl draft right. or the nba draft but I, I think it's great for the game that the 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 average to avid avid fan is starting to know some of these names before we get into the draft. You know, I think one of the things that's propelled it so far forward is just social media. You know, nowadays every single one of these amateur kids has a Twitter account or has a you know that they, they have all all these accounts and we can we can we can watch them. You know, we can we can view them and it sounds crazy, but that's part of the scouting exercise. It's amazing what these players will reveal if you just follow them on Twitter. And, you know, you get a lot of sense of who they are, you know, makeup-wise and mm-hmm. as a teammate and some of the, their off-field activities. And so I think that's where it's changed a lot, both for the fans, because now they're more household names for the fans, but also for the teams. It adds a layer of analysis that we can employ by just simply clicking the word follow next to their name in Twitter. How much can that impact your thoughts on, on a kid, too, based on what they uh, might reveal and tweet and or put on Facebook? I think, you know, when you're talking about trying to make the best decisions you can for your team, you know, when you're evaluating uh, amateur talent, your scout goes in there and tells you two assessments of the player. One is what I see today, what's what's the talent I see present day, but then two, and the more important one is what do I believe he will be when he's performing at his best. So there's usually a gap between those two assessments, and those types of things that you just referenced, Mm -hmm. in our minds, highly influence the likelihood of the player achieving their upside potential or even, you know, ideally overachieving that. So as we're trying to prognosticate as best we can, we've all created formulas and models, but at the end of the day, they're human beings. So there's a volatility you can't 100% predict. But one of the things that I think does help immeasurably is, well, what is the internal resolve of this person? What is the work ethic? What's the grit? What's the passion? How good of a teammate is he on the days where he's not contributing on the field? Those things, I think, really enhance our ability to assess 
whether or not this person is going to be able to realize their potential. So I think those things are vital uh, and teams are using them in a very wide scale fashion to make these decisions. 